Well, welcome back to the book of Malachi this morning. We're in Malachi chapter 2. Malachi is not one of those books that, uh, you know, you probably hear a whole lot of preaching series through. But after we finished the Gospel of Luke, we decided to go to the Old Testament and work our way through the last book of the Old Testament. So it's the book of Malachi. And so in these next four weeks leading up to Christmas, we'll be finishing this book. And this book will, will transition us uh, into this expectation for the coming Christ. It's a, it's a fascinating little book, only four chapters long, has some deep, deep themes. If you remember from the opening of the book, it just talks about how God loves us. And actually, this, this prophet was trying to convince people of that truth. And sometimes we need the same convincing. No, God really does love you. And he loves you enough to call you out of sin to himself. And so as chapter 1 continues to unfold, he's calling people out of their sin. In the beginning of chapter 2, he's calling these priests even out of their sin to following him. Now we get to chapter 2, verses 10 through 16. And that will be our passage this morning. He's dealing with an issue that was going on amidst the people of Israel particularly a twofold problem, intermarriage and divorce. So see if you can follow along with those two issues in this text as I read. I'll read verses 10 through 16, and when I finish verse 16, I'll say, this is the word of the Lord, and you can respond, thanks be to God. Malachi chapter 2, beginning in verse 10. Have we not all one father? Has not one God created us? Why then are we faithless to one another, profaning the covenant of our fathers? Judah has been faithless, and abomination has been committed in Israel and in Jerusalem. For Judah has profaned the sanctuary of the Lord, which he loves, and has married the daughters of a foreign god. May the Lord cut off from the tents of Jacob any descendant of the man who does this, who brings an offering to the Lord of hosts. And this second thing you do, you cover the Lord's altar with tears, with weeping and groaning, because he no longer regards the offering or accepts it with favor from your hand. But you say, why does he not? Because the Lord was witness between you and the wife of your youth, to whom you have been faithless, though she is your companion and your wife by covenant. Did he not make them one with a portion of the Spirit in their union? And what was the one God seeking? Godly offspring. So guard yourselves in your spirit and let none of you be faithless to the wife of your youth. For the man who does not love his wife but divorces her, says the Lord, the God of Israel, covers his garment with violence, says the Lord of hosts. So guard yourselves in your spirit and do not be faithless. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Let's pray together. Lord, we ask that you would teach us from your word. This morning, as we wrestle with a difficult topic, 
one that probably touches most of our lives. As we, as we talk about a painful topic, help us to hear your words of comfort. Our faithlessness has brought so much sin in this world, but your faithfulness is our hope and, and we trust in you. And so help us to follow your lead through your word. We pray in Jesus' name, amen. I read an article last week that ended like this. Quote, the bottom line, expect far fewer 50th anniversary parties in the future. Now, why did the author assert that? Well, it's because over the last 50 years, the marriage rate in the U.S. has dropped by nearly 60%. Not only that, the number of women entering their first marriage between the ages of 40 and 59 has jumped 75% since 1990. Andrew Cherlin, a sociologist at Johns Hopkins, said this, Many of the life events we link to marriage, such as cohabitating or having kids, are increasingly occurring outside of marriage. And not only that, but where marriage used to be the basic institution that everyone had to buy into in early adulthood, it's now becoming the last step into adulthood and an optional step at that. So we're seeing fewer and later marriages in the U.S. But not only that, when people finally get to the I do, the stats of living happily ever after in that relationship seem to be stacked against us. In the time it takes a young couple to recite their vows, there have been three divorces in the U.S., during just that time. Almost 50% of all marriages in our country will end in divorce. We're talking about a legal process that could take more than a year, costs an average of $7,000 in legal fees. Then comes the custody battle, disputes over the division of property, alimony, fractured friendships, angry and hurting people. What's happening in our country is that divorce is ripping people apart. Like two wooden boards that were once glued together, divorce is yanking them apart and we're left with all of these splinters. Sadly, we're seeing more and more of it in the U.S. And then it it leaves us with these questions like, okay, so what are we supposed to do about it? What are we supposed to do about the sad state of matrimony in our culture? And how are we supposed to respond to an issue that's so difficult? An issue that I imagine touches most lives in this room. In our text this morning, Malachi is going to address the people of Israel. And God is going to teach us what to do. You see, when it comes to marriage these days, 
there are two things we need to do. We need to, number one, biblically address the problems. And then number two, we need to honestly acknowledge the impact. And I think that's what unfolds in this text. We need to start by biblically addressing the problems. And so as we talk about marriage problems, instead of looking out there, I think we need to first look in here. That's what Malachi does. He doesn't go on a preaching campaign to all of these other nations. Instead, he begins to speak directly to the people of God. He talks to Israel and he highlights the problems that are going on in marriage. First, he says, there's a problem with mixed marriage. You see that in verse number 11. Take a look at the text again. Verse number 11. Judah has been faithless. And abomination has been committed in Israel and in Jerusalem. For Judah has profaned the sanctuary of the Lord which he loves. And has married the daughter of a foreign god. Mixed marriage. Now, let me explain what was happening historically. The people of Israel had been taken into captivity in Babylon. They had been there for 70 years. There was a return from exile. It came in these different phases. You can read about them in the books of Ezra and Nehemiah. Well, when the people get back from captivity, they're plagued with drought and blight. I mean, this agricultural community was not prospering. You can read about that in Haggai chapter 1, verse 11. I mean, things were not going well for the farmers. Things were not prosperous. They're amidst all these ruins, and their livelihood wasn't producing. They're barely scraping by. I mean, imagine the economic pressure on these post-exilic Jews. They're now back in their land, but they can't even make a living. So what? What happens? Well, the Israelite men begin marrying foreign women so that they could kind of marry into these established families. They want to secure local commerce so they make these marital connections. They intermarry so that they could be gained into the trade guilds, the business cartels. They pursue these foreign marriages because they wanted to advance their economic status. So what you have to see here are flawed motivations for marriage. The wrong things became the most important things. Oh, we're not making it economically. So let's marry these foreign wives so that we can have a better life. You see, it was marriage about money. They were more concerned about financial advancement than they were faith in God. Unless we think that only happened back then in Malachi's day, I want to suggest to you this morning that it happens in our day as well. People elevate cursory things instead of things that should be at the center when it comes to marriage. People value things like body shape and beauty, a sense of humor, conversational acuity, and they diminish the importance of faith 
godliness, missional living, purity. Those things don't really matter. It's beauty, it's body shape. Those are the things that matter most today. Sadly, some singles eliminate from consideration a person who would be an excellent spouse. And they do it because their scale of values is upside down. Listen to the wisdom of the Proverbs. Proverbs 30, 31, 30. Charm is deceitful and beauty is vain. But a woman who fears the Lord, she shall be praised. Well, the Israelite men in Malachi's day spurned God's wisdom and they married for superfluous reasons. Now notice how this intermarriage is called an act of faithlessness. Do you see it in verse number 11? Judah has been faithless five times in this text. You've been faithless. 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 In other words, your marriage mess is a result of a lack of faith. Like, I just wonder how many of you really think about marriage in terms of faith. You may, you may think about marriage in terms of a, a great many other things. Oh, now I can file my taxes this way. Now we can afford this house. Now we can cut our expenses in half. Now I can get the sex that I want. Now I can have a companion. Now there's someone who's always for me. Wait, have you thought about marriage in terms of faith? What he says here in this text is that these Israelite men have been faithless. They've betrayed the Lord and his covenant. And it actually says in verse number 11 that it's an abomination to God. Faithless intermarriage is an abomination to God. I want to let the weight of the word abomination sit with you for a minute. Your marriage choice if it's not filled with faith, could be an abomination to God. That's a pretty heavy word, by the way. It's used in other contexts in the Old Testament, an abomination to God. It was used in context to describe idol worshipers. They were an abomination, Deuteronomy 7. It was, it was used to describe those who practiced perverse sexual acts, Leviticus 18, an abomination to God. Those who participated in cultic rites or human sacrifice, they were an abomination to God. Those who intermarry and are faithless are an abomination to God. That's what it says in verse number 11. Now, I want to be clear that the treachery that Malachi is condemning here was not a problem with intermarriage based on race or ethnicity. That was not at all the problem. And we know that because in the Old Testament, there are various examples of interracial marriage. Joseph, for instance, marries Asenath in Genesis 41, an interracial marriage, not a problem. Moses marries Zipporah, an interracial marriage. Exodus 2, not a problem. Boaz marries Ruth, Ruth chapter 4, not a problem. There's even intermarriage in the line of the Messiah. Look at Matthew chapter 1. So it's not ethnic or racial at its root. That's not the problem with intermarriage in this text. It's that the Israelite men, look at verse number 11, the last part of the verse. They were marrying, quote, 
daughters of a foreign God. That's the problem with their intermarriage. They weren't just marrying women from other people groups. They were marrying women who were active devotees to pagan gods, false religions. The phrase used in the text was a formal reference. So when you see daughters of a foreign god, it's a formal reference to people who are religious participants. Like you see it in Numbers chapter 21. The Moabites are called sons and daughters of Chemosh, this idol. Or in Deuteronomy 32, positively, the Israelites are called sons and daughters of Yahweh. Here, these foreign women are called daughters of foreign gods. So the problem with intermarriage was the union of, and catch this, the problem here is the union of believers with unbelievers in marriage. Moses had clearly written in the law, this comes from Deuteronomy chapter 7, verse 3. Listen to what Moses had already instructed the people of Israel. Do not intermarry with them. Do not give your daughters to their sons or take their daughters for your sons because they will turn your sons away from me to worship other gods. If you doubt that, just look at the life of Solomon. Do you remember he intermarries with all of these pagan women? And next thing you know, all through Israel and on all the high places, what are there? They're idolatrous altars all throughout Israel. My friends, marriage was intended to be a blessing from God where two people could enjoy a harmonious and happy relationship. God's plan was oneness in marriage. When we think about mathematics and marriage, it should be like this. This is God's plan. One plus one equals one. I mean, that was God's plan for marriage, a unity of faith and family. I didn't know that Will and Kirsten were going to be sharing their stories this morning when we had this planned out, but did you hear them? and some of the struggles that they went through. Friends, God's plan is for unity of faith and unity of family. His plan is that believers would marry believers. Now, let's not relegate this to just Old Testament Israel. Listen to the way Paul puts it in 2 Corinthians chapter 6, verses 14 and 15. And actually, Kirsten used a phrase right out of this text. 2 Corinthians 6, do not be unequally yoked with unbelievers. For what partnership has righteousness with lawlessness? What fellowship has light with darkness? What accord has Christ with Belial? Or what portion does a believer share with an unbeliever? I think this is so important for us. God's plan is that you would hear his voice, both you and your spouse, that you would move closer to God, and as a result, you would be closer to each other. And that's God's plan for marriage. But here's what's happening. I think even in a room like this, some of you singles, you're wondering, okay, who am I supposed to marry? Who's this special friend that I'm supposed to find here in Salt Lake City? 
I mean, how is this going to work for me? I want to warn you. God's plan for you, if you're a believer, God's plan for you is to pursue another believer. And, and you might be thinking, well, why? I mean, what, what's the point? Why is this so significant? They're a nice person. They're very friendly. They're actually nicer than some of the people in here. <laughs> yeah, but they're a lost person. And what that means is they're still dead in their trespasses and sins. You've been made alive by God's grace, but they're still dead in their trespasses and sins. And do you really want to be married to a spiritual corpse? A lost person is still part of the kingdom of darkness, but you've been rescued from that, and you're now a citizen in the kingdom of the beloved, Colossians 1. Ephesians 5 says you're supposed to walk as a child of light and have no fellowship with the unfruitful works of darkness. How is that going to work in this sort of relationship if they're not a believer? A lost person is going astray. I mean, think about it. You're both supposed to be pursuing God, but if you link up with a lost person, you're going to be someone who's a sheep hearing the good shepherd's voice trying to move towards God, and they are going to be all we like sheep have what? gone astray. Do you see this? You're heading in opposite directions. That's what he's warning us of here in this text. In 1 Corinthians 7, Paul talks about a widowed woman who's getting married, and he says this, she is free to be married to whom she wishes only in the Lord. In other words, only to a believer. This is important for us, my friends, especially here in the city, because I think some people could be confused. Like they could look at this friend from the gym or this nice coworker that they have a cubicle next to, and they could look at their morals and look at their values and say, boy, it seems like we have a lot of shared values. It seems like we're both pursuing certain morals. And those two circles seem to overlap pretty tightly. So when it comes to morals and values, you could think to yourself, we're practically the same as this person from another religion. But what about your theological convictions? When you start looking at them, all of a sudden you discern that you're actually worlds apart. You're incongruent when it comes to who God is? What are your sacred texts that are going to be authoritative in your marriage? What is the meaning of salvation? What about the eternal deity of Christ? And so much more. You could find yourself morally synced up, but theologically, worlds apart. I know this is tough because some of you singles... It's like you watch candles get added to your birthday cake every year and you still feel very alone. You ache because there's no one in your life. You're lonely. You're tired of waiting. And I would imagine that there are some of you in this room who have been tempted to settle for a nice person. Someone who simply shares your values someone who's kind to you. I wonder if you've even rationalized in your own mind, I can be a good influence on them. 
One day maybe I can share the gospel with them. We're not all that different. My friend, I know it must be hard and waiting isn't easy, but I want you to listen to God's word this morning. Intermarriage with an unbeliever is not God's plan. Missionary marriage is not God's plan. You're eternally mismatched. You're like two puzzle pieces from two different puzzles. They're never going to fit together the way God wants. One author put it this way, since a married couple must come to a common understanding in order to live happily together, one or the other partner will have to compromise. And if you don't compromise, there's going to be incessant conflict. Neither one of those options are good. Mixed marriage, interfaith marriage. That was one of the problems that Malachi was warning about in this text. They were marrying the daughters of a foreign god. But the second problem he warns about in this text is that there was a problem with flagrant divorce. Verse number 14, it says this, you have been faithless. Do you see it? Take a look at verse number 14. But you say, why has he not? Basically, why hasn't he accepted this, uh, the, the offerings that we give? Because the Lord was witness between you and the wife of your youth to whom you have been faithless. You've been faithless to her. Though she's your companion, your wife by covenant, did he not make them one with a portion of the spirit in their union? And what was the one God seeking? Godly offspring. So guard yourselves in your spirit. Let none of you be faithless to the wife of your youth. For the man who does not love his wife but divorces her, says the Lord, the God of Israel, covers his garment with violence. There was a problem with divorce. So I've already talked to you about the issue of intermarriage. Now, where does divorce come on the table? Well, I'm going to tell you how they got to intermarriage. They got to intermarriage by divorcing their previous spouse. So imagine these people, they come from the Babylonian exile back to the land of Israel. There are generations there in Israel just scraping by, can't make enough money. Things aren't going well. There's blight and drought and the economy is trashed. And so these men decide, I know how we can fix things. We'll marry these foreigners who have business connections. Their families will get us out of this hole. We'll finally be into the trade guilds. We'll finally be able to make some profit and have some inroads in this community. Oh, junk. I'm already married. Oh, well, let's just divorce them so that we can marry into these families. That's what's happening here in this text. When he talks about the wife of their youth, he's talking about their Jewish wives. And they're ditching them so that they can marry these pagan women. Their original wives, maybe they're getting a little old. Maybe they weren't as attractive as they once were. They certainly offer no financial benefit to these post-exilic men. And so they're being dumped. These women who shared everything together with their husbands, the griefs and joys, the successes and the failures, the hard times and the good times, they're now being cast off like an old garment. Divorce is rampant in Israel at the time of Malachi, and it was a serious problem. You can see the call 
away from divorce in, and this being a real problem in books like Nehemiah and Ezra as well. Now some of you here this morning, maybe you haven't gotten to the point of divorce. But I wonder if some of you are on your way there. Perhaps you're viewing your spouse transactionally. And they're just not giving what they used to. Or maybe you're looking at your spouse's fading beauty or the depreciated excitement of the daily grind and you're starting to look for something better or someone more invigorating. Oh, you haven't filed the papers yet, but you've started to wander with your eyes. I wonder if some of you in here have deleted texts. You've hidden apps. You have relational secrets. You've started to get attached to someone else emotionally. You daydream or fantasize about someone else or something different than the marriage you're in. And if that's you, my friend, you're on a dangerous road. Now, it's interesting to note how Malachi describes the Jewish wives, the ones who were being divorced. He describes them in three phrases. And I think it's because he wants to, he wants to show us the depth of the problem that's going on here with flagrant divorce. Look at verse number 14 and notice the three ways that these Jewish wives are described, these ones who are being divorced. He calls them first, the wife of your youth. Second, your companion. Third, your wife by covenant. She was a partner in the early years. She was there in the honeymoon stage of the marriage. She was the companion of your life. The word companion is an architectural word. It means a seam, a joint, or a permanent bond. She was the one that was bound to you, seamed to you, joined to you. She was your wife by covenant, by vow, by promise. I mean, listen, we are in a bad state here in the U.S. because we have amnesia. Every time we're stepping into a divorce, we have amnesia about those vows that we said. For better or for worse, in rich, richer or poorer, in sickness and in health, till what? Death. And suddenly we have amnesia. We just don't feel like it anymore. We don't, we don't feel like being married anymore. The, the conflicts are too hard to solve. We don't communicate. We're just not compatible anymore. I remember, this has only happened a few times in my life that I have been like yelled at. Like someone in my face, have you, how many of you have had someone in your face yell at you? Like, I mean, just like spitting yell, you know? Okay, there's some of you in here. It's not a very pleasant experience. There have been a few occasions where I've had someone so mad at me that they were in my face just like spit yelling, you know? Like you want to give them a tic-tac, you know? <laughs> Take two steps back, suck on this for a little while, then we'll talk again, all right? You're like, here's a tic-tac. I was in Wichita Falls as a pastor, and um, this woman in my church was being divorced by her husband. Her husband was willing to come in and talk to me. Not really. He just wanted to rationalize. He wanted someone to be on his side in this divorce. I mean, I'll, I'll summarize the story. The story went like this. He was riding a horse. He fell off the horse and bonked his head. He no longer loved his wife. 
and thought he should divorce her. I mean, you're like, really? It sounds like one of those board books that you read to little kids. Humpty Dumpty, right? No, that was, that was it. Well, he had been spending a lot of time at, uh, where, they had, where they were storing their horse. And after he finalized the divorce, it was like two weeks later, he married the horse lady. So it probably wasn't that he bonked his head. Uh, probably wasn't it. But when I told him, well, listen, if you don't love your wife anymore, then you're going to have to choose to love her. Because that's what 1 Corinthians 13 calls you to. You, I mean, he lost it. There in my office, I mean, he's in my face just yelling at me, like spit yell. Because he wanted to convince me that because he bonked his head and didn't feel like he loved his wife anymore, that he had the right to divorce her. Somehow he had amnesia about the covenant he made. A covenant is a promise. It is a vow. Covenants were like you would take this animal, hack it in half, take these two pieces of an animal corpse with all the blood and goo in between, flop them on two different sides, and you and your spouse walk through the midst of all that blood and gore, and you say something like this, and may this happen to me if I break this covenant. That's a covenant. We don't see that today, do we, in marriage? This was the wife of your youth. This was your companion. This was your wife by covenant. And you're treating her like a used car. You know, people buy cars. They want to test drive it first. Lease it if you don't want a long-term commitment. Trade it back in for a newer model. If it has rust, gets dented, or has high mileage. And that's the way people treat marriage today. But that's not God's plan. These Israelite men were flagrantly discarding these women. One author put it this way. She whom you thus wronged. This was a Puritan author writing on this text. She whom you thus wronged was the companion of those earlier and brighter days when in the bloom of her young beauty she left her father's house and shared your early struggles and rejoiced in your later success who walked arm in arm with you along the pilgrimage of life, cheering you in its trials by her gentle ministry. And now, when her youth has faded and her friends have gone, when her father and mother, who she left for you, are in the grave, then you cruelly cast her off as worn out, a worthless thing, and insult her affections by putting an idolater and a heathen in her place. That's what was going on. In Israel, I think from a human perspective, we can see that divorce is painful and hard. But what about from God's perspective? Notice the end of verse 14. Can you see it there? Look in the text, the end of verse 14. It says this very interesting phrase. The Lord was witness between you and the wife of your youth to whom you have been faithless, though she is your companion and your wife by covenant. Did he not make them one with a portion of the spirit in their union? In other words, Malachi is saying this. Yeah, 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 I know you had your best man and your maid of honor sign those two little parts at the bottom of your marriage certificate, witness. 
I know you had them sign it, but do you know who the real witness was at your wedding? It was God. He was a witness. And he didn't just hear your vows. He wants to hold you to your vows. He's the one that took the two of you and made you one, just like he did with Adam and Eve in the beginning. It was a spiritual work, and he did that in your marriage. And now, for a chance at better business, for a chance at a younger spouse, for a little more excitement, you're going to disregard God and destroy his work? No, friends, don't do that. Don't do that. That's not God's plan. He was a witness at your wedding, and he wants to hold you to your vows. Well, in Malachi's day, there was brazen divorce. It was a real issue then, and it's a real issue now. Here in the state of Utah, the waiting period between filing and finalization is 30 days, and it can even be less than that. You can completely do a divorce without an attorney. Maybe that's why in 2023, the study by Form Rush discovered that Utah had the eighth highest divorce rate in the U.S. And it's not just them out there. 2023, Forbes Advisor article wrote this, quote, evangelical Protestant divorces are at a higher rate than any other religious group. We've got our own concerns right here. Mixed marriages, flagrant divorces. They're plaguing the people of God. And even though it's hard, like, you know, I mean, just pastorally, this would be one of those passages to jump over, you know. Because, I don't tell you why, because some of you in here are aching. Like, maybe you're aching because of a past divorce. Or you're struggling right now in your own marriage. Or your parents went through a divorce and it just ripped you apart. It's like a very difficult topic to talk about. But we need to address marriage problems biblically. Friend, don't you want to know what God says about this? Don't you want to follow his lead? Malachi is trying to help the people of God biblically address the problem. But not only that, he wants them to honestly acknowledge the impact. Many of you know that when, when we first moved here as a, a team, the pastors were, were bivocational. We had full-time jobs in the community. Uh, my full-time job as the church was getting started was to work up at Hill Air Force Base. I was activated there as a chaplain for three years in uniform. And then for another about five, six years as a civilian, I worked up there as a civilian counselor. And I sat with people who were, you know, going through a divorce. Many of those people who I sat with wanted to convince me that it was going to be better. Like, that, that's, that's how it starts. It's like, they're having so much pain in the marriage. They can only hope that it's going to be better if they get out of the marriage. And maybe they've tried, or maybe they don't feel like they have the tools, or they're not sure what to do, and they just don't want to work on it anymore. They're fatigued, or, you know, we've tried to work on it in the past, and it never worked out. And, and they, they just, they envision something much better. But they often fail 
to think about the impact their divorce will have on others. It's, it, it becomes, it, like, listen, we're all like this, so this isn't condemnatory. We're all like this. But when we're in pain, we think about us. Right? If you're in marital pain, you are likely self-centered. We're kind of all like that. When we're in pain, we look at ourselves. But what's unique about this passage is that Malachi actually wants you to lift your gaze from yourself to look at the impact your messed up marriage is going to have on others or your divorce is going to have on others. He wants you to think about others for a moment. Honestly acknowledge the impact. Now in Malachi's day, the people that he was addressing with these messed up marriage, intermarriage and divorce, they thought that if they could just keep up with the sacrifices, if they could just go to the temple and offer their offering, then everything's going to be okay. Then it didn't matter what happened with their marriages. But that's not true, my friends. Well, I'll just keep up my religious stuff, and this marriage stuff will be my private stuff. No, that's not true, my friend. There are consequences. You can't put on the public face, happy Christian, and then have the private face homewrecker, somehow compartmentalizing your spiritual life. It doesn't work that way. Notice first in the text, in verse number 11, notice first how the prophet explains that messed up marriages actually destroy worship. Second half of verse number 11, Judah, look at that phrase, Judah has profaned the sanctuary of the Lord. Judah has profaned. Think about it. That's the place of worship, the sanctuary of the Lord. Judah has profaned, polluted, treated with disregard the sanctuary of the Lord. Look at verse number 13. Look at the second half of verse 13. God no longer regards the offering or accepts it with favor from your hand. You profane the sanctuary and God's not going to accept your offering. Your messed up marriages are actually destroying worship. Here at the center of the religious community was the temple, the sanctuary of God. And these men who had divorced their Jewish wives and intermarried with pagan women are still, in verse number 12, they're still bringing their offerings to the Lord of hosts. Do you see that at the, at the end of verse number 12? Brings an offering to the Lord of hosts. The word offering there means a dedication offering. I mean, the irony of it. They're bringing a dedication offering. Oh God, I'm, I'm just so dedicated to you. Well, at the very same time, they're breaking his command. It'd be like coming to a service singing, here I am to worship. Here I am to bow down. Here I am to say that you're my God, yada, yada, yada. Are we done now? I want to get back to my sin. That's what was going on here. Their messed up marriages were destroying worship. So God doesn't accept their offerings from their hands. I just wonder, are we destroying worship in the church because of how we relate to our spouses in the home? Have you come to a gathering on a Sunday and been unable to worship because of the way your marriage is? 
Think about this text from 1 Peter 3, 7. Husbands, this is New Testament. Husbands, live with your wives in an understanding way, showing honor to the woman as a weaker vessel, since they are heirs with you of the grace of life. Listen to the last phrase. So that your prayers may not be hindered. Has your relationship with your spouse been dysfunctional? And because of that, your prayers have been hindered. God was not receiving their offerings. In the New Testament, it says he won't receive your prayers. Your marriage actually can impact your worship. Maybe you argued on the way to church this morning. Maybe this last week, Thanksgiving wasn't so great. You guys are doing the silent treatment thing. Maybe you've refused to forgive your spouse. Maybe you've committed adultery in your heart or you've pursued some other connection with someone else. Maybe you've held on to bitterness or resentment. Maybe you've withheld yourself from your spouse and selfishness. Maybe you've been angry. And then you pull into the parking lot and you put on a smile and you come in and you try to sing. How's that working? See, messed up marriages destroy worship. That's one of the ways they're impacted. Here's the second way. Messed up marriages actually distress children. Look at verse number 15. They impact kids. Did he not make them one? He's talking about the marriage. Did he not make two one with a portion of the spirit in their union? And what was the one God seeking? He was seeking godly offspring. God intended marriage to be this greenhouse for growing godly kids. I mean, think about Ephesians chapter 6, verse 4 in the New Testament. Fathers, do not provoke your children to anger, but bring them up in the discipline and instruction of the Lord. Nurture your kids in godliness. That's what marriage is supposed to do. You're supposed to raise a godly generation who knows God's name and spreads his fame. But when there's interfaith marriage and when there's divorce, you actually impact those kids. I wonder how many of you grew up in a home where there was divorce. Maybe you know exactly what I'm talking about. Imagine a home with a believer and an unbeliever. How does that work out in the long run? Well, you're from the faith of Scripture and you've got someone from another religion. And what happens when there's baptism that comes on the scene? Or what happens when your spouse says, I don't want these kids to be told to go to church. They're going to make their own decisions about God. That's like letting kids make their own decisions about school and bedtime and desserts. No, they're supposed to be trained in that. But how does that work when you have interfaith marriages? What happens when you want to read the Bible to your kids and pray with them, but your spouse feels like every time you do that, you're cramming religion down their throat and he wants it to stop? What about when you're trying to hallow God's name in the home and your spouse is profaning God's name in the home? Do you know what this does to kids? It creates a tug of war with their hearts. The two people they love most are going in opposite directions. And it's destroying their hearts. You think about intermarriage and it's all about you. You think about divorce and it's all about you. It's not all about you. It actually impacts worship. It actually impacts kids. It actually impacts the whole faith community. 
Malachi goes on in verse number 10. He says, messed up marriages divide the faith community. You see that in verse 10. He says, have we not all one father? Has not one God created us? Do you see he's pointing to the unity that the people of Israel are supposed to have. God is their father. He's the one that called them out as a nation. They're supposed to be one. And he says, why then are we faithless to one another? Profaning the covenant of our fathers. You see, these men were bringing in idol-worshiping women into the community of Israel. And they were dividing the faith community. They were reversing the process of sanctification. They were undermining the faith of many. You know, Western culture, we love individualism. We love to think that it's my choice, you know. Isley Brothers, it's your thing. Do what you want to do. And that's kind of how we like to live our lives, but that's not true. If you're a believer, you're part of a community, a family of faith, a people for God's own possession. And do you know that marrying an unbeliever impacts the community? Do you know that divorcing your spouse impacts the community? That's what was happening in Malachi's day. Friend, if you, if you marry an unbeliever, you threaten to divide this community. If you divorce your spouse, you put the unity of the congregation at risk. You may think to yourself, marital sin is my sin and my choice. But that's just not true. It impacts others. It destroys worship, distresses kids, divides the community. Here's one last thing as we close. Messed up marriages actually dismantle society at large. Do you realize that the fabric of society is built on marriage and family? You don't even have to be a Christian to know this. Your intermarriage and these dysfunctional marriages, your divorces, these broken marriages, are pulling the threads from the fabric of society. They're eroding the foundation of society. Look at verse number 16, and I want to show this to you as we close. Verse 16, the man who does not love his wife but divorces her, says the Lord, the God of Israel. Look at this next phrase. It's interesting. It says this. He covers his garment with violence. Now that might be confusing to some of you. What does it mean? He covers his garment or this garment covering and it has violence on it. What is this about? Well, there was a cultural symbol of protection and care that had to do with someone's garment. You would put a garment over someone that you wanted to protect and care for. I mean, can you think of a biblical story where a woman was covered with a garment of care and protection? Her name was Ruth. Ruth goes to the threshing floor. She goes to Boaz's feet. She peels back the garment that was covering his feet and she lays at his feet. Boaz is startled. What's going on here? And he realizes who it is at his feet. And this is what Ruth says in Ruth chapter 3, verse 9. Spread your wings. The, the Hebrew there is literally, spread the corner of your garment over your servant, for you are a redeemer. In other words, Ruth was asking Boaz to take the garment of care and protection and cover her, marry her, because, she, because he was her kinsman redeemer. 
what our text in Malachi is saying is that the garment covering that was supposed to symbolize care and protection is being turned upside down and is now symbolizing violence. It's covered in violence because what was happening is these Jewish men were ditching their wives, leaving them with nothing. It was social violence. These women had no recourse. They had no homes. They had no security. They had no money. They were ditched and lost and cast off like trash. And he's saying here, you are causing social violence. In other words, you're pulling the threads from the very fabric of society. Instead of God seeing the offering that these men were bringing, what he actually saw instead in verse number 12 was the tears, the weeping, and the groaning of the women that they had cast off. I think this brings us to a pretty important point. And that is, we may think that God views us through the lens of our offering. That's how these men were treating God. They were like, well, if I just bring my dedication offering, then God's gonna be fine with me. If I just bribe God by giving something good, then I'll be good. Instead of viewing us through the lens of our offering, in reality, God views our offerings through the lens of us. In other words, he looks at our hearts. He knows our lives. And then he considers whether he will regard our gifts. The men of Malachi's day were destroying marriage through divorce. They were disrupting the covenant community through intermarriage with pagans. And in all of this, they were eroding the foundation of society. Friends, the family is the building block of civilization. There's an author of the 18th century, a British historian named Edward Gibbon. He wrote a six-volume piece entitled The Decline and Fall of the Roman Empire. You want to go to bed, just pull one of the volumes. He was trying to trace what were the causes for Rome's demise. And his first and foremost reason was the rapid divorce that was happening amongst the Romans. It caused instability in the home and the very fabric of society. My friends, that was true then, and it's just true now. Malachi's addressing this issue, the very heart of Israel. Men were pulling out the bottom Jenga blocks underneath society, and their messed up marriages had consequences. My friends, so do ours. So here we are at the end of the text. Okay, address the problem biblically. Acknowledge the impact. All right. Well, what are we left with? Here's what we're left with. This is verse 15 and 16. Two times he says this. He's going to call us to, to a strong move to protect our marriages. Look at verse 15. So guard yourselves in your spirit and let none of you be faithless to the wife of your youth. Skip down to verse 16. Guard yourself in your spirit and do not be faithless. In other words, watch over your marriage like a watchman watches over the city. Guard the treasure of matrimony as a gift from God. His intention is that believers only marry believers and that once you're married, you stay married. But my friends, the only way we can ever do that 
is by looking to him for help. We all need God's grace in this journey. As I studied this text, I was struck by the fact that the word faithless repeats so many times. Faithless, 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 faithless people. That word may describe us, but it doesn't describe God. He's faithful even when we're faithless because he can't deny himself. Folks, Christ loves his bride, the church, even when we're unlovely. I was thinking about this. If anyone had a right to divorce his bride, it would be Christ. I mean, if anyone had a right, it would be him. But instead of divorcing us, he gave himself up for us on a cross. And through that, he demonstrated a never-failing, never-ending, always constant love. And that's what our marriages are supposed to picture. So may the Lord help us as we take steps to follow his example. Let's pray. Friend, I wonder if you'd just bow your head and close your eyes and reflect on the text this morning. As the instruments play, I just wonder if some of you need to adjust the way that you're pursuing a future spouse. Are you prioritizing faith or other peripheral things? Are you limiting your search to believers or not? Maybe you're in a relationship, but God's just convicting you. This needs to change. This person's not a believer. What is God calling you to do as a single person this morning? Maybe you're here this morning, you're married, but you've been drifting from your spouse. Maybe you haven't filed divorce papers yet, but maybe you've taken steps away from the oneness that God desires for marriage? Have you held on to resentment? Have you pursued outside pleasures? Have you been drifting emotionally or lustfully? Friend, that's not what God wants for you. Perhaps you need to renew your current marriage covenant and pursue your spouse afresh. That's God's desire. Finally, I wonder if there are some of you who have been through a difficult divorce. You feel left with pain and perhaps regret. You can't remake the past, but my friend, you can live by faith in the present. And maybe you just need to give your pain to the Lord, receive his grace anew today. Maybe you just need to commit to glorifying him in your current situation. Maybe you're in a marriage with an unbeliever and it's difficult. God just wants you to use your sphere of influence. Pray, influence as you can for God's glory. You can't change the past, but you can live by faith in the present. Lord, would you help us with this text? Would you help us to identify what you say are some of the problems that happen in marriage? Would you help us to honestly acknowledge that they have impact beyond ourselves? And would you help us to get back to your plan? We need your help. We need your grace. We ask for it in Jesus' name. Amen.